Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I think if one were to survey the history of American music, and you were looking for that unique, distinctive genre that defines and sets the trajectory of the United States musical voice, where would one begin? English and German pub songs from Europe, maybe. They are there. Irish and Gaelic jigs and fiddle tunes. Those are the main contributors to mountain music and bluegrass, to be sure. Spanish influence. It is present, a main reason that we have cowboy songs and country and western music. What about gospel and church songs? Of course, that was the music of the frontier, and for many of us, the first music that we remember playing or singing. And then there is, of course, the later British invasion Not pub drinking songs, but true rock and roll. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Zombies, the Who, McCartney and Ringo are still invading. So are the Stones. Even if they do have to take oxygen between sets backstage. I'm beginning to understand that better every day. But there would be no distinguishing brand of American music without the songs of the southern United States. Without the songs from the cotton fields, without the songs of slavery, you don't get Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, Ella Fitzgerald, or Billie Holiday without the African-American spirituals they heard as children from their parents, their grandparents, and others. We don't get Mahala Jackson, Mavis Staples, Ray Charles, Duke Ellington, Lead Belly, Robert Johnson, John Lee Hooker, Sister Rosetta Tharp, I can go on and on, without their forebearer songs of adversity and trouble. Classic rock and roll, Appalachian gospel, country ballads, today's R&B and rap music, it is rooted in the African-American experience of 400 years of slavery. A glaring historical example. You will know one of these individuals, but do you know the other? In July 1956, Elvis recorded the song that would become his signature, the essence of rebellious rock and roll. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Is there an American alive today or since 1956 who has not heard that song? It was his first major hit, his best-selling single, 10 million copies right out of the chute. 
Simultaneously, it was number one on the U.S. pop, country, and R&B charts, and it stayed in that position for three months, a record that stood for 36 years. Elvis was a gyrating, hip-swinging, deadly gorgeous white boy from Mississippi singing a fusion of hillbilly, jazz, gospel, blues, and swing, what would become rock and roll, and it was all built on the African-American spiritual. Elvis Presley was not the first to record Hound Dog. That distinction belonged to Willie Mae Thornton, Big Mama Thornton, as she was known. Born near Montgomery, Alabama, she got her musical education in the church and working in local juke joints where her job was to clean tobacco spittoons. Her recording of Hound Dog and a collection of Deep South spirituals are epic even though she has never received the love and attention she deserves, recording Hound Dog years before Elvis Presley did. But in a time, in that time, a woman, a black woman in the South was not going to succeed. But those who have followed her certainly did, Elvis included, and she and those of her heritage and experience and sufferings created American music. Our music is the spiritual, created out of suffering and longing for justice, made in the USA originals, crafted by blood and sweat and tears and broken bodies and broken hearts, but not broken spirits. Frederick Douglass wrote in 1845, two decades before the abolition of slavery, these songs from my youth were loud, long, and deep, Breathing the prayer and complaint of souls boiling boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. And that is it right there. Like the wailing of the children of Israel in chains in Egypt, the spiritual cries out and it has never left the American imagination. You know them. Swing low. Sweet chariot, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Go down, Moses. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Wade in the water, children, down by the riverside. I'm just a poor, wayfaring stranger. He's got the whole world in his hands, all originating out of slavery. And then the one we sang today, Ride on, King Jesus. This song was well known during the Civil War, and it was often the marching song of Union regiments of escaped slaves. It was published as early as 1867. Enslaved people could identify with a man born poor, a man mistreated, a man innocent, abused, killed unjustly. But they longed for his full story to become Theirs, this lowly Jesus would not be hindered. He could not be stopped. He would rise, not just from the dead, but he would rise to the highest place of power in the universe. He would be seated at God's right hand. He wouldn't just ride away like a hero into the sunset or run away like a free man escaping his chains. He would be triumphant. He would conquer. He would become the King of Kings. That's good music, and it's good New Testament 
theology, even though it was dangerous for slaves to sing too much about it. This is a picture of James Farley, one of this country's first black photographers, born a slave in Virginia, and he spoke about the peril of this particular song. Quote, when I was a little boy, they would kill us if they caught us in Sunday school, where one might learn to read or write. But sometimes on Sunday evenings, they would let us have our own church, and then you could take the front seats. But the slave patrol would sit in the back, so that if the preacher said something he shouldn't say, they would stop him. One time we were singing, right on, King Jesus, no man's going to hinder me. And the slavers stopped our singing right off and said, if we didn't stop singing that song, they would show us exactly how they would hinder us. What was the threat? Well, before I answer that directly, let's read the text that inspired the spiritual. On the church calendar, this Sunday is known as Ascension Sunday, commemorating the ascension of Jesus to heaven after his resurrection. This is Acts 1, verses 3 through 9. During the 40 days after Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. He proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem. Until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the prelude to next Sunday, which is Pentecost Sunday. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and to restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. This is the word of God for the people of God today. Those slavers, despicable as they were, must at least be credited with understanding the meaning of Acts 1. They understood that the ascension of Jesus, his rising to the heavens, joining God as ruler over all things, was an empowering, liberating message. And they could not afford for those in chains to carry on about it too much because they might start believing it. They might start acting on it. They understood that Acts 1 is a story about power. Who has it and who does not. Jesus is Lord, meaning no one else is. They had to hinder this message, or at least those who were coming to understand it, because a person who takes Jesus as Lord cannot be held captive for very long. 
And I'm not talking about violence. I'm not talking about today's brand of pseudo-Christianity that is not like, not unlike that that drove the Crusades. That it's all about being in charge. It's all about imposing Judeo-Christian principles on government, on schools, and greater society. The very ethic of Jesus is nonviolent. The essence of Jesus can never be imposed. It can only be shared. It can only be offered. The moment one uses force or coercion or strong-arm tactics or manipulation in the name of Jesus... That is the precise moment that one actually denies the way of Jesus. His power is real, it is liberating, it is revolutionary, but it is not like the power of this world. It is a power by negation. It is strength through service. It is resurrection and ascension via a cross It is rule that will last forever because it is not subject to the strivings and the ambitions of this world. The slave patrols knew this. And far more terrifying to them was not the prospect of a slave's body being set free from chains. It was a slave's heart and mind being set free, liberated by the power of Christ. How does Bob Marley say it? In what is essentially a contemporary spiritual. Old pirates, yes, they rob I, sold I to the merchant ships minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit, but my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. And in the line from the second stanza, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Even in chains, a person can be empowered to say, you can beat me, but I will prevail. You can kill me, but I will rise. You can threaten, torture, cripple, and jail me, but you will never hinder or hold me down. That privilege belongs only to Jesus to say that my knee has bent to someone else in worship and in adoration and in, and in submission. Only Christ has that place in my life. And when a group of people begin to believe that, that is a dangerous group of people. Not because they will do violence, not because they will harm anyone, but because they will overturn the tables. They won't play by the rules that the world imposes. They cannot be cowered into submission. For if Jesus is reigning and ruling, there is nothing in this world to fear. Jesus rises to heaven, not so his people can be put in charge. Now that's what the disciples wanted. Did you see that? Is it time? Are we about to start kicking butt and taking names? And Jesus gives them that colossal, forget about it. It's not for you to know. That's really none of your business. Tell the good news. Live the good news. Love God. Love your neighbor. Be my witnesses. Jesus rises to heaven so his people will be empowered, not put into power. 
His intent is to heal the world, not to take it over. To help, not to harm. To restore, not simply rule. To harmonize, not to hate. To bind together, not tear apart. To set people free, mind, body, and spirit. Not to limit, intimidate, or to enslave. Now I'll compare and contrast here right in Jesus' own day and maybe ours. When Luke wrote those words in Acts chapter 1, The world had been living under the Pax Romana for about a century. Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The golden age of Roman rule. Prosperity, no major wars, territorial expansion, the good old days. Well, how did the Romans keep the peace? Secure borders? Nope. An educational system for all? No. Unions and fair wages? No. No discrimination policies and family leave? No. By brutality. Fierce, uncompromising, sledgehammer brutality. In the time of Jesus, Luke, and Paul, it is likely that 30% of the Roman world was enslaved. 30%. Another 60% lived in abject poverty. And what we might refer to today as the middle class consisted of no more than 5% of the population. That only leaves 5% left. Who are these people? The last 5% are divided into two groups. The wealthy and the army. So 95% of the known world is run by the 5% with all the money and all the muscle. Now, apologies to those who heard this during my recent study on Paul, but it bears repeating here. When Julius Caesar died 40 years before Jesus, there was a massive state funeral that was held. And at the funeral, lo and behold, there was the astronomical accident of a comet appearing. And it hung there in the sky over Rome for seven days. And Octavian, who would become Augustus Caesar, seized that opportunity. He leapt up on the funeral pyre and he said, Behold, Caesar rising to the heavens to take his place among the gods. And everybody believed it. And for the next 200 years, Caesar was worshipped as a god. When Caesar died, whether it be Julius or Augustus or the many that would follow, everyone believed that he ascended to heaven and that his successor on earth, they called him the Son of God. So when you read your New Testament, think of it in those terms. That the New Testament writers are not making theological claims as much as they are making protest claims. This is the real Son of God, not your Caesars. So in Luke, in Acts 1, Luke, with some flair, is thumping the noggin of the so called Roman peace. It's not peace, it's a prison. 
Caesar isn't some comet-riding deity. And this whole empire thing is a farce unto itself. It is a Ponzi scheme. It is held together by the rubber bands and paper clips of greed and violence and the exploitation of the weak by the strong. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. That means Caesar is not. And the same can be said of any and all those men and women who would attempt to play that part in the future and all those who wield power for their own selfish ends. The kingdom is built for the poor, for those who mourn, For the humble, for those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for the merciful, for the pure in heart, for the peacemakers, for the persecuted who are trying to do the right thing. Those are the Beatitudes, by the way. And beneath those lie true power. Only about three dozen monarchies remain in the world today. And the most prominent, certainly at one time the most powerful, was on full display just a few days ago. Why do Americans giggle when we see that? But we do, don't we? Maybe it's good Anna wasn't here to read today. I don't know. Charles Philip Arthur George of the House of Windsor, Prince of Wales after being the heir apparent for a record 73 years, finally ascended to the British throne, king of the United Kingdom and head of the Commonwealth realm. He is the oldest person to ever become king in Great Britain. The United Kingdom is a constitutional monarchy. The head of state is a king or a queen, but the sovereign has very limited powers. That is, he or she is not really sovereign. He or she is not all-powerful. The king, Charles, today, has selective power over a few little things. He can influence, he can cajole, he can persuade. He is the United Kingdom's leading diplomat. He is the figurehead leading the armed forces, though he cannot give orders. And combined, the dozen or so members of the royal family participate in about 3,000 public and private engagements a year. They stay busy meeting and greeting and giving time and money to charity. But as the University College of London so well puts it from England's own constitution, the king reigns, but he does not rule. Hmm. So much pomp and circumstance. So much ceremony, so much honor and genuine respect for the crown, but so little true power. He holds a scepter. It's not even a sword anymore. It's a decoration. The globe he holds in his hand with a cross on top of it, by the way, taken from the Roman Caesars of their day, represents the kingdom, the whole world in his hand. And that's what used to be. It is certainly not what is. He reigns. But he does not rule. At least the British are being honest. Let them be credited with understanding that it is mostly symbolic. And let all the would-be leaders of the world understand the same. The power brokers and the tyrants. Those grappling for the highest seats. 
those running for elected office, those who will crush dissent or wage war, those who think they are strong and indestructible, destined to have statues made out of them, or even rise to the heavens one day. You may reign for a little while in this world, but you will never rule. For there is only one King of Kings. His throne is heaven. His crown is made of thorns. His rule is one of peace and loving kindness. His way is that of the cross. And His kingdom of liberation will never be overthrown. 